Good morning. My name is Janice, and I'm one of the staff pastors here at the Vineyard. And um, I'm so glad to be sharing the next sermon in our series with you today. Um, But you know, before we get started, it has been uh, a big week in Kentucky. The storms in uh, Western Kentucky in particular, um, goodness, that's affecting some of us who even have family and friends out there. And so, interestingly enough, I had already titled the message, A Proportionate Response. And it kind of fits. What is the proportionate response that we give to this kind of crisis? So uh, let me give you a few options this morning. Uh, Thankfully, just this fall, we had in uh, Brian McLeese from Convoy of Hope. um, And Convoy of Hope is an organization. They're a nonprofit offering um, hope and help all around the world. And one major arm of what they do is disaster relief. They are already stationed in Western Kentucky doing their work, and we're partnering with them. They are a big friend of the vineyard. And so there's a couple things you can do. If you want to help out with what is happening in Western Kentucky, you can give directly to Convoy of Hope. We encourage you to do that if that's the direction you want to go, convoyofhope.org, and, uh, and follow whatever giving opportunities that they give you there. If you want to give through the vineyard here, we will make sure it gets to Convoy of Hope, and we will send it on in that way. And then one third option that we heard about just this morning Our good friends over at Lexington Road Church of God are sending a trailer out um, this week. And if you really want to give something physical, some non-perishable things, some water, some things like that, um, they will be accepting those things this afternoon and tomorrow. So three ways that we can give uh, and help out with the people over there in, um, you know, it's just our neck of the woods. And we know that that is not what they had planned for Christmas. They are grieving and there are people who have lost family, and there are people who have lost uh, resources. So um, do what you would like to do with that. All right. Well, we're going to get right into the message this morning. So if you have your Bibles or your devices and want to follow along with me, we're going to read 14 verses out of Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. Now, don't, don't get bogged down by names. All right, can I just say that? Uh, sometimes Hebrew names really uh, send us reeling. We are like, oh, I cannot keep up with that. All right, we're going to sort it out at the end, but don't get distracted by the names. Let's pay attention to what's happening in the story, and then we'll break it down a little bit. And I promise it's a Christmas message. It may not feel like a battle is a Christmas message, but it might be. All right, Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, the prophet, and this is his book. This is his account, right? So the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shir Jazub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field and say to him, be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, tear it apart, divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tobiah king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. 
For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of the Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether it is in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, you idiot. Not really. I added that in. I think that's what he was thinking. You idiot. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough that you try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Are you ready? Here's the Christmas part. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Jesus coming to earth in the form of a baby to a virgin mother. And it is in the, on the heels of this crazy story. Is that not the most amazing thing? I mean, here it is. This is one of 108 prophecies that we find throughout the Old Testament that claim that Jesus is going to come. And it is 680 years before it's ever going to happen. That's how far in advance this is. Listen to this. In 1958, renowned mathematics and astronomy professor Peter Stoner studied and calculated the chances of the fulfillment of messianic prophecies. He concluded that the probability of even eight of those 108 prophecies coming to pass is conservatively one in one plus 17 zeros. That is one in 100 quadrillion. That's the probability that even one of them would come to pass, much less all of them come to pass. This makes Christmas one of the most significant miracles in history. One of the most significant miracles in history. This miracle is foretold 680 years before it happens. How long can you wait for a miracle? How long are you willing to wait for a miracle? It is almost Christmas, and I would contend that most of us can hardly wait for our packages to arrive, right? And I don't know about you, I know the supply chains have been really busted up, especially in or you're building anything of substance, but I got to tell you, you know, Amazon's been good to me. You know what I mean? They've been getting stuff to me right on time. I was worried and prepared to get stuff early, and either I'm ordering, you know, malarkey that nobody else wants or something. I don't really know. But stuff has been showing up to me. Have you seen that meme about all the delivery things? I just have to share it with you in case you haven't, because I just, I think it's still really accurate. With all apologies to every one of these companies. UPS. Your package is in your city on a truck driven by Mike. It will arrive on your doorstep at 6.27 p.m. today. FedEx, your package is coming and you'll get it when we get it there. UPS, you, no, USPS, what package? Amazon, we are already inside your apartment. Check the bathroom. Facebook, not really a delivery, but we know you were thinking about getting a toaster yesterday and here are 20 ads for toasters for you to look at today, right? I mean, this is kind of it. We have zero patience for miracles, right? We've been talking about miracles during this series, a miracle on my street, and I'm telling you, Ahaz needs a miracle. 
All right, he is in a situation in his life right now, we're going to break this down, that he needs a miracle. Now, there are a lot of names, so don't get distracted by that. Let's just get, hit the, the high points, all right? Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he is residing in the capital city of Jerusalem, okay? So he's the guy we're caring about. He's the one who's under threat. He is being threatened by Rezin, who is the king of Syria, and he's being threatened by another guy named Pekah, king of Israel, who... For all intents and purposes, is like a distant cousin, okay? And Ephraim also represents part of Israel. Now, the backstory that you're maybe unaware of is that this King Ahaz has fought off each of these armies in previous years. He's already fought them individually, and he's barely fended them off, but he's kept them out of Jerusalem. So he's managed to get rid of them. Another one comes up, and he's managed to get rid of them, and now they have allied together. They've created an alliance and here's the deal. He's tired, right? His troops are probably depleted. He needs reinforcements. His chariot wheels need fixed. He needs more ammo. He needs whatever it is. And he is discouraged at the idea that this is happening. His troops are exhausted. He is weakened. And he hears of an alliance. He is in need of a miracle. Folks, we are usually in need of a miracle when we are at our weakest, when we're at our weakest, when we are most weary, when we have just fished all night and caught no fishes, when we have managed successfully to keep whatever the threat is at bay, but now we're just, we're tired. <laughs> and you hear about a new threat coming in and you, you begin to lose hope. You're tired of fighting and you're ready to throw in the towel. And I would suggest that some of us in here today are tired of fighting and ready to throw in the towel on something on a relationship, on a job, on something that people are asking of you and you don't feel like you have anything left to give. What is the miracle you're needing right now? What is the miracle that you need? What miracle would you like from Jesus this year? Not like a new Apple Watch and some new gizmo. What is it that you would really like Jesus to intervene in your life and do? that could be nothing short of a miracle. You know, that thing that you've honestly given up hope for. You don't even hope for it anymore. It's just past you. The scripture says the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the field, forest are shaken by the wind. They are trembling. What are those things that shake you to the core? You know, what makes you tremble with dread? See, this is no surprise attack. This is not a surprise attack. A surprise attack would be they came up, they had attacked in the middle of the night, and you just call up the forces that you have and you, and you just go out. But you know what? When your enemy comes to you and doesn't surprise you but sends advance notice, guess what? I'm coming and I'm going to get you. That means they're confident. They know they have the, the, the wherewithal to take you down, right? And it's intimidation. It is raw intimidation. I'm letting you know that I'm coming and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the kind of intimidation. That's the kind of thing that makes people quiver and shake and give up. It makes us retreat. It makes us surrender. It makes us give up before the battle even starts. That's really what they're hoping for, that they'll just back off and it won't even start. So God, in his mercy and compassion, sends the prophet Isaiah and his son, with that weird name, to deliver a message of encouragement. And here's the message, right? It's a great message. 
And I would suggest to you that if you have a Bible open or you're taking notes, you need to circle this, this next message. You need to memorize it. You need to write it down. You need to highlight it. Because if you don't need it today, you will need it someday. You will need it someday. And here's the message. Be careful. Keep calm. And don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. I love that. I love when God calls people names, right? Two smoldering stubs of firewood. Those people who are plotting your demise. Those people that are hoping for your failure. You know, when it says don't lose heart, what it really means is don't be faint-hearted. Don't be faint-hearted. Don't, um, you know, that thing that just takes your breath away. And you don't even feel like you have anything left to fight because you've just, whatever's in front of you, you don't even have the will to stand up against it. And God says, don't lose heart during this time. And then God calls the king's names. They're just two smoldering stubs of firewood. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good fire. I do. I, I love a real fire with firewood. I admit we do the fake thing. We have the fake fireplace and we have the fake fire pit. But I love a real fire. Because it, but you know what I know about that is when you get down to the stubs, the end of the wood, right? You're, you know what you know about it? It's almost over. It's almost over. There's nothing left to do but roast marshmallows. And God is telling him, there's nothing left to do but roast marshmallows on these guys. You don't need to worry about this. This is not a bonfire. This is not an explosion. This is not something that has fresh fuel. This is something that is already almost done. These kings are already almost done. You do not need to worry about it. Their end is near. You are being threatened by that which cannot and will not hurt you. Let me say that again. You are being threatened by that which cannot and will not hurt you. What is it in your life that God is calling two smoldering stubs of firewood? What is he inviting you to discount that you need to care less about, that you need to worry less about? Because I want you to hear God as he says this. It will not take place. It will not happen. And if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. He invites you to stand firm in your faith. Then, in addition to this promise, God gives a confirmation. And he says to him, listen, I'm going to confirm this through a sign. And here's the deal. Ask me anything. Ask me anything from the deepest depths to the highest heights. Ask me anything, and I will give you a sign to confirm that my promise is real and you are going to be safe. And I'm like, who needs a sign after God shows up through a prophet and says it's not going to happen? It's not going to take place. Take his word for it and be quiet. No, no. There's the thing. Ahaz has already given up on God. Scholars believe that Ahaz has truly given up on God. He is not even in good relationship with God. He's given up on him. And so he's been fighting his own battles. He's been depending on his own horses and chariots. And like I said before, they need reinforcements. So he knows that. He doesn't have it. So he, so he gives up this lame excuse. And how many of us do this? Oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to ask God for a sign. You know, wouldn't want to test God today. He's inviting me to, but no, no, it's okay. Don't pretend to be humble when you need something. Let's not pretend to be humble when we need something. When, when it, he's offering you a miracle, what have we given up on that feels like too big of an ask? And we're like, oh, 
I can't even ask for that, God. I don't know. I don't even have the guts to ask. And God is saying, ask me anything. From the highest heights to the lowest lows, just ask me and I will give you a sign. The title of our message today, I'm calling it a disproportionate response. What is the response that we give to a threat that comes to us? Years ago, I got in, uh, interested, and in, uh, one of my children knows this, in a show called The West Wing. And uh, you don't have to like it. I loved it. It's got really snappy writing, and I feel like they always gave both political points of view at least a, a fair shake, and, and, uh, and I just really like it. And one of the shows from the very first season, I think, was called A Proportionate Response. What does a nation as big as the United States do when this happens? What's the proportionate response versus the disproportionate response? So that's what I'm using this morning for how we respond to a threat. And I'm going to give you two short lists. First, we're going to look at the negative, the disproportionate response. Number one. Number one, choose, uh, no, giving up on a miracle, giving up on a miracle is a disproportionate response. When you give up on it, before it comes, refusing to ask God, refusing to put him to the test is a disproportionate response. Now, um, I have seven grandchildren now, and, uh, and because I'm not baby Jesus, and I don't know, really know what their little heart desires, I have to ask them what they would like for Christmas. I like, I, you know, I just want to know where little, little heads are at, you know, because I don't want to, you know, get them Legos if they're past that or dollies if they're not into that or whatever. So I generally ask them what they want. And, um, and I have children, grandchildren with very different uh, personalities. So I have a one who is very cost conscious. And uh, this child looks at the cost and if it's over a certain number, they will not ask for that item. Oh, no, that's, that's too much. You know, and they, they're very conservative, and they give me just a couple of little items. And, and, um, and then there, I have another child that's very carefree, and they're like, oh, I want this and that and this and that and the other thing. And, and it's not from an entitlement point of view, because goodness knows I'm not going to get them just everything they want. But I would like to know what their heart desires, right? Because I would like to know their heart. And I'm honestly kind of sad that they don't all trust me with that. I'm kind of sad that some of them have to feel very conservative when they tell me what they really like. And I wonder if God's not like that. God wants to know our heart. He's not up there going to give you everything you point out, but he would like for you to tell him what you're thinking about. He'd like to have the ask. There's nothing wrong with the ask. He is perfectly capable of saying no. And he will do that if he needs to do that right? You can ask. Giving up on a miracle is claiming defeat early. <laughs> You're just claiming it early. And then you can be the victim and be sad and, and all of that. Ask for the miracle. And, and trust me, I'm preaching this to me as much as anybody because I am the conservative asker, right? I'm just like, I don't know. I've used up a lot of God's grace. I've gotten a lot of things. I don't know. You know, I, I get that and I have to work on it myself. Number two, Obsessing over a threat is a disproportionate response. When we obsess over whatever the thing is that has been announced to us, living in angst, living in constant anxiety, the threat in your life is not worth your anxiety or your worry. Obsessing is the very opposite of what God told Ahaz to do. He said three things in, in this verse four. Number one, be careful. When we're obsessing about something, we are rarely careful. <laughs> we start making rash decisions. We start blowing through red flags. We start jumping the gun, right? We're just looking for the escape window. We're looking how to get out of this thing as fast as we can. And he says, be careful, be calculating. 
Be careful with whatever the threat is in front of you. Just take a step back and be careful about your next move. Slow down. The second thing he says is keep calm. And what that really translates into being is keep quiet. Quiet yourself. Quiet yourself. It made me think of how babies soothe themselves sometimes. Quiet yourself. Don't, don't lose your mind. Take a deep breath. No big action. Stand strong. Right? Stand strong, steady, even-minded. Don't be frantic. So be careful. Keep calm. Don't let your thoughts run away with you. And the third one is, don't be afraid. I hate it when God tells me not to be afraid. How do you not be afraid? I don't even, I, how in the world, as a child, I would, you know, I had, to, I had to walk out in the dark to this goofy barn that was how many, I don't know, it felt like three miles behind the house in the dark and milk the dumb cow and bring this thing back in the dark. And I used to sing songs to keep myself from being afraid all the way up. I'm not sure what that, it was probably self-soothing, whatever. How do you not be afraid of whatever the threat is that's out there? It feels like a natural response to terror, to threat, to the dark. But here's what, I, here's what I felt like God told me. Fear is based on what we perceive. Fear is based on what we perceive. If I see a green dragon over there, it is a proportionate response for me to run from it. But if I can see that there is no green dragon then a proportionate response is to stand right here and to have no fear. So the antidote to fear is to be able to see the truth. To see the truth. In the Old Testament, there was a, a prophet named Elisha, and he had a servant. And at one point in his, in his uh, journeys, they were surrounded by the enemy that were coming after them. And, uh, and the servant was frightened because he could see all of the armies gathering and getting closer and closer. And he couldn't understand why Elisha wasn't afraid. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And when his eyes were opened, his servant could see chariots of fire surrounding them, keeping the enemy at bay. See, he wasn't afraid once he could see the truth. Once he could realize that he was protected by supernatural forces, he wasn't afraid anymore. I think Ahaz was missing the truth. Ahaz is in, in, unable to see the truth that God is really there to protect him. That's the antidote to fear, is truth and being able to perceive it, that God is in control and God has a miracle for him. Number three, my last disproportionate response is overreacting to a threat. Overreacting to a threat is a disproportionate response, and a lot of us do that, right? Misdirecting our angst and our anxiety and our loss and our fear because it usually shows up as anger, doesn't it? You know, I mean, if Ahaz goes home, you know, yelling at other chariot drivers for their bad driving, if he goes home and kicks the palace dog or the palace camel or whatever he has, if he goes home and yells at his kids and fights with his wife, he might be overreacting to the fear that he has, to the threat that he has out there. Letting ourselves retaliate beyond the scope of the crime or the threat is overreacting. There are some battles in our lives that God wants to fight for us. He wants to fight them for us. Exodus 14, 14 says, The Lord will fight for you. You only need to keep still. 2 Chronicles 20, 17, You need not fight this battle. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. 
Now, when I went to find a couple of these verses, I'm like, I knew a couple of them. I just didn't know the address for them. And I'm like, I'm searching to find a few verses about the Lord fighting our battles. And I was like, oh, there'll be like, you know, four or six. No, there was a hundred verses that showed up in my search engine. There's so many verses about God fighting our battles for us. If you are struggling in that, just go search them and just read them to your heart's content and learn that God wants to fight for you. So let's talk about proportionate responses now. Number one, recognizing that the God of the universe who saved you from your sins, saved me from my sins, who sees every hair on our head, sees every sparrow that falls, sees every tear, that God is still in charge and has a miracle for you. That is a proportionate response. Recognizing that God is in charge and has a miracle for you is a proportionate response. Believing that Jesus can do it is a start. In the New Testament, there is a man who brings a child to Jesus for healing. This man says, my child has been possessed by a demon, that he sometimes does terrible things, and I really just want you to heal him. And it says in Mark, he, he says, the demon often throws him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, believe, help my unbelief. See, we don't have to have the full belief. Jesus honored the fact that he had a start. (laughs) He's like, you know, I'm not totally convinced you're going to do this, God, but I kind of believe, I want to believe, I've got a little bit here. Can you work with that? And Jesus says, you bet. You bet. We will work with that. That's the start, and Jesus honored it. Number two, keeping your hope fresh when you're powerless to change things is a proportionate response. And I'm like, how do you keep your hope fresh when it's been 680 years and things have not happened and I'm, you know, and I'm tired and I'm weary? How do I keep my hope fresh? Romans 12, 12 says this, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Romans 8, 24 through 25 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I'm convinced that keeping our hope fresh takes at least three things. It takes patience, it takes prayer, and I think it takes proximity to the Father. I think we have to stay close. When we begin to drift away from the person that our hope is anchored in, then we begin to lose hope that he can really do anything for us. When we begin to drift away from the church family, we begin to feel disconnected, like nobody cares about me anymore. When we drift away from our connection, we begin to worry and lose hope in what God wants us to hope for. We need each other. We need to be near. We need to be near the Father. But it's going to take patience, and we have to continue to pray. Prayer, patience, and proximity. And number three, moving toward the hope of a miracle is a proportionate response. Moving toward it. The thing I love in the Christmas story are the Magi and the shepherds. They're my favorite because they actually do something. I like people who do, right? And the Magi go on a two-year journey at least. They're traveling, and I mean, they pack up. Who knows what you miss in two years of leaving your homeland? You miss a good bit, right? They are packed. They are invested in figuring out if this baby Jesus, if this baby king is something worthy of their honor. And all they're doing is giving gifts. It's an incredible 
story. And you have these shepherds sitting out in the field. They don't have as far to go. They're already pretty close to Bethlehem. But they get told by the angels that there's a child for them to find, and they decide to go see him. Let's just read that. Luke 2, 8 through 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. It's a good thing to be when angels show up. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Again, don't be afraid. Good luck with that. I bring you good news. I bring good news to you that will bring, cause great joy for all the people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is a Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And with the angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on, to those on whom his favor rests. I learned this in King James. Can you tell? I'm stumbling. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, here we go. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. We're going to go and see. The Magi go and see. That's very different than sit and wait. Some of us are really good at sitting and waiting and fussing and complaining and being anxious and worrying and being concerned and imagining all of the terrible things that can happen. And, and the Christmas story is full of let's go and see. And here's the great part. You don't have to understand the miracle that God is doing in order to receive it. The shepherds don't totally understand. The, the magi totally don't understand. It, frankly, the only reason the magi come is because years earlier, and this is honestly what scholars believe about why they even came. Years earlier, when Jerusalem had been conquered and they took captives over to Babylon, these people never lost hope. And they continued to talk about the prophecies of the Messiah coming. All of these 108 prophecies, they continue to talk about their faith to these foreign lands. And so now you have these magi who are not from Israel, but they've heard about it. And they're coming. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, in the midst of the hardship of these Israeli captives, someone else is able to learn about Jesus. What hardship has put you in a position to share the hope and promise of God to those who might never have known about God's love for them? What hardship in our life would, that we would like to have avoided, that we wish was not part of our history, that was not part of our story, has put us in a position to share Jesus with someone? For someone to see us following Jesus in the midst of that hardship, even though we wish it wasn't there. What a thought. We have to keep moving toward the hope of the miracle. We have to keep encouraging others to go and see. I have been um, looking at miracles as we uh, get ready for the next small group study that we're going to be doing in January. If you're not in a small group, I really encourage you to, to get and We'll be starting um, uh, sign-ups for that in the first part of January. And this is what we're going to be studying. We're going to be studying the red letters. If you have a Bible, sometimes uh, Bibles were printed and all of the words of Jesus were in red letters. That's what we're going to study. You won't need any other book. You just need to take your Bible to, uh, to there. And I've been working on the chapter that we're going to be talking about the miracles that Jesus did. And I've been looking for patterns. As a historian, that's kind of the thing we do. And so I've been looking at the patterns of Jesus in relation to miracles. And here's a couple of things I've noticed. I love how people who are healed behave. 
Here's a few things that they do. People who get healing come and they bow down. They go and see, right? They come and they bow down to Jesus. They ask. They ask Jesus for what they want. They believe that he can do it, even if it's only a little bit of belief, right? Help my unbelief, but I believe. They expect it from a distance. Sometimes they're like, God, I, you don't even have to be here, but I'm praying for that person who's way over there, miles away, but I trust that you can do it. They bring their friends and family who maybe aren't even asking for healing, but they ask for healing for them. That's, that's appropriate. God will heal people because you, you asked it. You brought someone who needed it. They reach out to him sometimes and just touch his clothes. It's a little hard to do in this century, but wouldn't that be great? They praise him, they thank him, and they tell everybody, they spread the word. I love the way they do that. And then I also love how Jesus heals. No incantations. He doesn't wave sticks. He doesn't dance around. He doesn't use flowery religious words. Instead, he does four things. He asks the person what they want. Do you want to be healed? What is it that you want? Sometimes he notices the misery of the people that he's getting ready to heal. He sees it and he approaches them. He touches them and he says really simple things. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Because I think Jesus is asking this morning, what miracle do you need? What do you want? What do you want for Christmas? What do you need in your life? What are you afraid to give voice to? Because Jesus has already noticed it. He wants you to give it voice. He wants to touch you. He wants to put hands on you. These people up here are our prayer team, and while they are not Jesus, we believe that when we lay hands on each other the way God told us to in the New Testament, that we are invoking God on you. And so we will do that if you're good with that. And he wants to say some really simple things. So as you consider whatever's been coming to mind as I've been teaching this morning, I want you to listen to these red-letter words of Jesus. And if any of these are just burning into you as I speak them, I hope you will come up during this last song. We're going to stand, and you can come up to any of these people. And if these people all fill up, we have more prayer people. They will show up, and they will pray with you. And if everybody's full, just come and stand against the, the thing, and other people will come. I guarantee it. And they will pray over you. Okay? I want to know if any of this is burning into you before I pray. Okay? These are words, red-letter words, that Jesus said to people he was healing. Get up. Don't cry. You are set free. You are forgiven. What do you want me to do? Tell people what God has done. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And my personal favorite, stop wailing. Let's stand to our feet and pray. God, today, as we come to you, God, I pray 
that whoever in here is needing a miracle from you, that they would have the courage to come and voice that today. That they would come and just receive prayer and know (laughs) that you are here and that you want to touch them. God, for those of us who are tired, for those of us who are weary, for those of us who've been fighting successfully the threats that are in front of us, but now we're just, we're just done and we're giving up hope. God, this is a season of hope. Give us the patience. Give us the, the initiative to continue to pray. Give us the desire to draw near to you, to get in proximity with you so that we can feel your comfort, that we can feel the healing that you want to give us. God, touch us this day. In Jesus' name.